Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week I am pleased to welcome a guest to discuss the weekly Torah portion. The Torah, the five books of Moses, is divided into 54 parashiot, weekly readings, which can accommodate the unique nature of the Hebrew calendar, a solar and lunar calendar. Some years we have an extra month known as the second month of Adar, which requires four additional readings. And to accommodate that, we sometimes have double readings. In addition, some holidays and holy days occur on Shabbat, and they have unique readings, which eliminates the regularly scheduled parashah. This Shabbat and this week in synagogues throughout the Jewish world, the second book of the five books, uh, known in English as Exodus and in Hebrew Shmot, is uh, starting its reading. And our weekly portion begins at the very first verse and chapter and continues through the sixth chapter. It is highlighted by the following occurrences. The children of Israel multiply in Egypt, threatened by their growing numbers. The Pharaoh enslaves them and orders the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, to kill all male babies at birth. When they do not comply, he commands his people to cast the Hebrew babies into the Nile. The text tells us a child is born to Yocheved the daughter of Levi and her husband Amram, and placed in a basket on the river while the baby's sister Miriam stands watch from afar. Pharaoh's daughter discovers the boy, raises him as her son, and names his Moses. Most of this is familiar to any of you who've seen the various movies or who read the Hebrew scriptures either in English or another language. As a young man, the Torah portion tells us Moses leaves the palace and discovers the hardship of his brethren. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and kills the Egyptian. The next day, he sees two Jews fighting. When he admonishes them, they reveal his deed of the previous day, and Moses is forced to flee from Egypt to a land called Midian. There he rescues Jethro's daughters, marries one of them known as Tzipporah, and becomes a shepherd of his father-in-law's flocks. God appears to Moses in the desert in a burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai, instructs him to go to Pharaoh and demand, let my people go, that they may serve me. Moses' brother Aaron is appointed to serve as his spokesperson. In Egypt, Moses and Aaron assemble the elders of Israel to tell them that their time of their redemption has come. The people believe Moses and Aaron, but Pharaoh refuses to let them go and even intensifies the suffering of Israel. Moses returns to God and complains, Why have you done evil to this people? God promises that the redemption will come. Simply have faith. 
With me this morning to discuss aspects of this week's reading is Rabbi Ronnie Friedman, who served as the Senior Rabbi of Temple Israel of Boston in the United States from 1999 to 2016. He also served North Shore Congregation Israel in Glencoe, Illinois, and was the Senior Rabbi of Beth Zion Congregation of Buffalo. He graduated with a B.A. in in English Literature from Lafayette College in 1969 and received rabbinic ordination from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1975. He was awarded an honorary doctorate from the same institution in 2000 and has taught as an adjunct clinical faculty at the seminary. Rabbi Friedman currently serves on the Joint Placement Commission of the Union of the URJ and has been active in both organizations of the rabbis and the lay people. It is a pleasure to uh, welcome Rabbi Friedman to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Hi. Well, it's wonderful to see you, my friend. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, Rabbi Friedman is an old friend of mine, but in addition to that, he is one of the most thoughtful commentators of Torah in uh, the liberal Jewish movement. And so it's with great pleasure that I invite him to share some words with you, the listeners. This morning, in the midst of all of the... uh, episodes and stories, we are going to focus on chapter three, because chapter three introduces to us a very different relationship between the God of the Israelites and an appointed leader of the Israelites. Most of you are aware of this episode, knowing it as the burning bush. And so let's begin uh, with the kind of easy question. When you read this chapter three, right at the beginning, what strikes you immediately? Well, I'm really intrigued by the interaction between God and Moses at the very beginning uh, while at the burning bush. Um, You know, we we read that that while tending his father-in-law's flock, he comes to Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, and there he sees the miraculous sight of a bush all aflame, yet the bush is not consumed. And as you know, a voice calls out to Moses out of the bush after getting attention, after getting Moses' attention, he says, Vayomer al tikrav halom shal na'alecha me'al raglecha. Don't... Uh, don't come closer, remove your sandals from your feet, um, and and then follows it with this phrase, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And I, I think the locution here, Steve, is really interesting. Most people misread it. Most people assume that Moses is told not to move because if he does, he might trespass upon holy territory. But when you listen to the text again, the place on which you stand is holy ground. Uh, 
The bush is not the locus of holiness. Moses is. In order to appreciate this fact, Moses has to stop long enough to receive the message. Where you stand, Moses, not somewhere else, that spot is holy. And when he perceives its potential for holiness, when he is able to discover that God's presence is not somewhere out there, it's not located beyond him, but rather within, it really is, I think, a major aspect of the revelation. This is an auditory version of Trump Loy. You know, you're deceived into thinking that that the appearance is over there, but in fact, the message is that it's within. And that's an interesting way to begin, it seems to me. Well, it's uh, quite fascinating that you want to refocus away from the bush itself, which is how most people uh, uh, address this section in chapter three, the burning bush that is not consumed. Or, in fact, some people want to note that the text tells us that an angel of Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. Uh, but what you've kind of identified and challenged us to think about is that uh, Moses becomes the focus. Indeed. I, I think that, that the significance of this is that, that uh, Moses is being redirected. And he's being redirected not to focus out there, but to focus within. And so when Moses uh, receives this challenge to not consider what is external to him, but what is internal to him, does that help us better understand why in verse 11 he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Well, you, you turn to the, the, the next most interesting aspect of this chapter. You know, I, I, if I can back up for, for a second, I, I, I've asserted, you know, from time to time that there are four ultimate questions, two in the, the, the first parasha, the first Torah portion of Genesis, and two, of, uh, two in this particular chapter, the, 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 the beginning of the first parasha, first portion of Exodus. And those two ultimate questions, I think, are, are really a, an incredible message to us. And in, in, in Genesis, you'll recall, uh, your listeners will all recall the story of uh, Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. And, and the question that God asks of, of them or of us is, Echa, you know, where? and uh, later in, in that parasha, when uh, after Cain kills his brother Abel, the second question is addressed, um, and, and it's Ehevel Achicha, where is where is Abel your brother? Um, and so, two questions from God to the human being, which in in, in essence are, are intended to um, to focus the human being uh, uh, upon what he or they are doing. Um, and I think that in this section of Exodus, I won't dwell on Genesis because we're not there, but in, in, in you know, the uh, verses in, in Exodus that we, that we come to, 
we really have the second set of questions. You framed the first one, and that is uh, um, uh, uh, um, who am I? And the, the second one that, uh, that he asks a little bit later is uh, uh, who God are you? So, you know, he, the text says that, that uh, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And later um, he says, uh, when God reassures him uh, that indeed I will be w- there with you, um, he, he says, when I come to the Israelites, uh, they're going to and tell them that, that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They will say to me, uh, Mashmo, what's his name? Um, which is another way of saying, who are you? So the two questions that we find in succession here, you know, who am I and who are you? And what's going on in, in, in here, I think, um, is... The, the opportunity to focus all of us on the two ultimate questions that are universal, and that is, what, what's going on with Moses? Moses, you know, is, is initially seeking to escape this charge. He doesn't want to, um, so, you know, who, who, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm just a schmo in the middle of, of the wilderness, you know, and, uh, you know, let me go back to tending my sheep. And the insistent divine command is, is, uh, reaches him. And, uh, the, the question is, is he's forced in, in effect to address the question. Your, your interpretation, um, fits very nicely with the arc that's created in the story. He's a, uh, child of Hebrews who um, is forced by circumstances to enter into the palace. So he's no longer really a Hebrew. Um, He's an Egyptian with uh, royal lineage. And then he leaves the palace, uh, and we can understand that both physically and metaphorically, and he uh, strikes an Egyptian and uh, commits a uh, crime of murder, and has to flee. So now he's an Israelite by birth, an Egyptian by uh, uh, raising uh, culture. Now he's a uh, fugitive. And you say that after all of that, um, it would be normative for him to ask, who am I? I mean, where do I fit in this, uh, in all of these circumstances? Um, am I the Hebrew? Am I the Egyptian? Am I a murderer? Um, and you're suggesting that Moses has to wrestle with the variety of components of his history and his personality, which, of course, all of us do. And I, and I would say that 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 question, you know, who am I, is a question predicated not so much upon moral obliviousness uh, as it is upon social distance. The cries that have reached God aren't anywhere near Moses at the moment. And when he sees injustice around him, he's responded in the past. But now that he's fled to Midian, uh, moved, so to speak, to the uh, the tranquil safety of the suburbs, he becomes detached 
once detached, it becomes inured to the reality of, of human suffering, at least to the human suffering of those back there. You know, I remember there's a, a great uh, um, philosopher uh, who had a, a run, you know, both in, in literature and, and, and in media, Leo Biscaglia. I don't re- know if you remember him. Sure. Uh, I mean, he was um, not often called a philosopher, uh, but somebody of, uh, you know, of an era who had great media presence and offered wisdom of the age. Yeah, he, he once told a story about an experiment um, uh, conducted with then unknowing college students. And the students were told that they each had a certain sum of money to spend for charitable purposes. Uh, they were given a choice of three causes. The first was to contribute to a fund to alleviate starvation in India. The second was to support an indigent student who would be forced to drop out of school unless he could raise tuition money. And the third was to enable the psychology department to buy a new Xerox machine for student use. You know, and, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that, that, that the third option was most popularly chosen. And, you know, Vescalia was then making the same point that I think is, 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 is real here, you know, initially for Moses, that, uh, you know, proximity really affects uh, our um, judgment about how something touches us. So the who am I is, you know, is an exceptionally broad question in this respect. It's, you know, what does this have to do with me is, is, is a part of it. And, and do you uh, make the supposition that Moses has to ask the question about himself before he can ask the question about God with relationship to the order of your uh, primordial questions. Who am I? Uh, And then, who is this voice? Or who is the uh, source of holiness? Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I think that's that you're right on it. You know, that, you know, think about who am I, and there, in a broader context, you know, there are two answers. One is perverse, and the other one is is inspirational. Uh, you know, I remember um, once visiting the the concentration camp at Buchenwald, and. Um, a sign appeared at, on the gate um, that could be read only from the inside looking out, yet him does sign to each his own, or in other words, every person to himself. And that was the message to the prisoners, you're completely alone. And the second um, answer, which is inspirational, is from the writings of Viktor Frankl. Who's a uh, survivor of the of the Holocaust and of concentration camps, um, who had a very different take on um, what was required besides uh, fortitude and luck uh, to be a survivor. And he was also, as as you know, a psychoanalyst. You know, when when he wrote, what is the meaning of life? He said, "I, I contend that man is not he who poses the question, what is the meaning of life? But he who has asked this question, for it is life itself that poses it to him. 
and man has to answer by answering for life. He has to respond by being responsible. So here's Moses confronted, I think, by 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 the tension between those two poles, if you will. Um, and yes, I think that that he can't begin to to seek um, the answer to the second question uh, and, and, until he comes to grips with his own identity. As we're beginning the story of the Exodus, and many of our listeners will know the variety of episodes within the text, is it your interpretation that these two questions become the seminal questions of the book? That during the journey that uh, Moses and then the Israelites make, they're constantly being required to answer that question, who am I, um, and what is my relationship to that which I now will struggle to understand in terms of deity? I think that's a great summation. Absolutely say yes to that. I think that, that and, and, you know, the extraordinary um, theological statement, you know, when, when Again, Moses says to God, here I will come to the children of Israel. I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, Mashmo, what's his name? That is, who are you? What shall I say to them? And God's answer to Moses, you know, I will be what I will be. You know, that, that last question is conditioned by Moses' insecurity. He's afraid, I think, that if he takes a stand, he's going to stand alone. He's filled with self-doubt. He has a certainty that he's an imposter, which leads him to doubt the presence of God as well. And uh, the purpose of the question, you know, is perhaps a gain and edge to discover how to manipulate God within Jewish tradition if you had the power of uh, naming something or someone, you had power over that entity. So who are you, God, is a question that can be asked in, in two different ways. The first is, in some sense, illegitimate, as it appears here. It's, it's an avoidance technique. Um, it's not a relational question, but one that treats God as an object to be manipulated. What Moses really wants to know is, what can I do with you? How can I use you? How can I get you to do what I need? <clears throat> and the, the answer that he rece receives is therefore a restatement of God's infinitude. I will be what I will be. And the answer, though, doesn't intend to mock Moses. Uh, rather, it responds to his great uncertainty and his need. Moses is every one of us. He's afraid of being swallowed whole by the infinite cries that exist in the world. And the response that he further gets is, Ehiyah imach, Ehiyah will be with you. I will be with you. I am is with you. You're not alone. So I think that that the um, that wonderful exchange that takes place is an attempt to, to, in essence, order the, the connection, the relationship. And I think you're quite right that not, that not only the relationship between Moses and God, but also the, the relationship 
between God and the entirety of Israel. But um, as we've been uh, parsing and probing the Hebrew, the Hebrew that is used in the name of God, the response, uh, seems to be without content. It seems to be open-ended. And yet we think of the Hebrew God, the God of the Torah, as being quite uh, well-defined, not only in our uh, imagination as the individual sitting on a throne, but uh, throughout uh, Western world, artists portray God with quite human limitations. But this text seems to be much more open-ended, as if to say God is there to be discovered um, in a variety of different swarot, in a variety of different forms and uh, situations. Um, do you think there's something specific for the text using that kind of response, as opposed to all the other names that exist for God? Adonai? Uh, yeah, I, look, I, I think the we as human beings have a desire, desire not to be left with mystery unsolved. And in, in essence, I think this statement, this text, um, Suggests that that there are some mysteries that 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 can't be uh, taken apart and put back together again. That that essentially the 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 wonder and awe in the presence of God that that uh, is appropriate is is one that doesn't permit division and uh, definition and differentiation, but rather experience. And I, I, I think it's very deliberate here. I think that you're quite right that it runs contrary to some of the uh, the anthropomorphic images of God that, that appear throughout Torah and Bible. But uh, you know, I, I would argue that uh, that that those are human creation imposed upon an idea of God rather than uh, what's intended here, which I think is pretty pure, and that is that. That, that God is, but that God is also completely self-defined, and that, that we can't break that open. So as Moses struggles to define himself and struggles to do that in a manner that isn't narcissistic, so too the Torah presents the deity in a non-corporeal manner, in a non-narcissistic manner, and says that this uh, relationship, which you alluded to beginning right in Genesis with uh, Adam and Eve uh, trying to discover themselves and uh, the deity telling them once they've discovered themselves, they are responsible for others, here we have Moses uh, set on a journey of discovery, which will eventually lead him to be responsible for others. Uh, do you see the two tied together? I know you must by what you said, but for our listeners, let's reemphasize that, that the discovery, as you see it, requires them to be interactive with others as part of it. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think that the, the, the first two questions in Genesis are, are the, the questions that God asks of, of all of us, each of us. And the, the two questions of Exodus are the, the, the questions that, that we, every one of us, asks of, asks of ourselves and of God, of that which is larger than ourselves. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Ronnie Friedman, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Israel in Boston. I want to thank him for joining us and challenging us to read this uh, very, very powerful section of Shmot, the first parasha of Exodus. You can find a podcast of this morning's conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom.